Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea. In this episode, I'm talking with Drs. Michelle Oing and J. Christian Greer about their new book, Kumano Kodo, Pilgrimage to Power Spots. Michelle K. Oing is a scholar of late medieval art, focusing on the intersection of sculpture and performance in Europe. She received her PhD in the history of art and architecture from Yale University and is currently a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center, as well as a lecturer in the art and history department. Her current book project, Puppet Potential, Late Medieval Sculpture and the Aesthetics of Play, examines the role of movable sculpture in Northern Europe through the conceptual framework of puppetry paying particular attention to notions of play, bringing together insights from art history and performance studies, her work seeks to highlight the dynamic interaction of humans and objects in the creation of meaning. Her forthcoming publications include a chapter on articulated sculptures of Christ in the Rutledge book Puppet and Spirit, Ritual, Religion, and Performing Objects, and an article about carnival masking in late medieval Nuremberg in Sculpture Journal. Dr. J. Christian Greer is a scholar of religious studies specializing in the global history of psychedelic spirituality. While a postdoctoral researcher at Harvard Divinity School, he led a series of research seminars that culminated in the creation of the Harvard Psychedelic Walking Tour, a free audio guide detailing how the Harvard community has shaped the modern history of psychedelic culture. His latest book, Kumano Kodo, Pilgrimage to Power Spots from OSGH Press, analyzes pilgrimage folklore that animates the rainforest landscapes of Japan's key peninsula. In his forthcoming book, Angel-Headed Hipsters, Psychedelic Militancy in 1980s North America from Oxford University Press explores the expansion of psychedelic culture in the late Cold War era. He is currently a lecturer at Stanford University. In this discussion, Michelle and Christian share their experiences with pilgrimages and how they came to write this book about the Japanese pilgrimage route known as the Kumano Kodo. As many people may not have had their own experiences with pilgrimages, they talk about the reasons that people might choose to go on a pilgrimage, what the purpose of such an endeavor is, and how it's not always a quote-unquote religious thing. We also discuss the liminal aspect of the pilgrimage road, the different types of spirit beings that one can encounter as the pilgrim enters the other space on the road, and how these encounters change the perspective of the pilgrim during the pilgrimage, but also afterwards. This conversation also includes some information about the mythology of the Kumano region of Japan, uh, plus an interesting finding by Christian about the political side of the Kumano Kodo as a UNESCO heritage site, plus much, much more stuff that you'll discover during the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Christian and Michelle. 
Thank you so much for having us. It's good to be back, Seth. <laughs> I am very happy to have you back, Christian. And I'm very happy to welcome Michelle to the podcast. Um, you two have written a wonderful, engaging book about pilgrimage in Japan called Kumano Kodo, Pilgrimage to Power Spots. Now, I personally don't have any experience with pilgrimage, so I was very curious to learn more about what what this all entails. What, what do you do, and, and how is it? You know, how how does that feel to do something like that? And this book was full of uh, interesting insights and information that was quite surprising at times as well. Things that I would have never even considered. You know, uh, having no experience, of course. So I thank you both for joining me uh, today to talk about your experiences regarding the pilgrimage and as well uh, as as how it was for you both in writing the book about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say the book was a lot of fun to write <laughs> for one very specific reason. We never intended on writing a book about that. So we are, <laughs> we've been pilgrimaging together for more than a decade and everything we learned was internalized and used for the next pilgrimage we'd take. And so what we were doing was accumulating a lot of what turned out to be pretty good advice, some really wild pilgrimage folklore <laughs> and other experiences just for our own benefit. And we actually organized a sort of pilgrimage confraternity. So we were sharing this amongst a group of other initiates, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But we never thought that the experiences we're having would be something we put down on paper and share with everybody because they were so specific. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what we do is interesting to other people who take pilgrimage very seriously. And so when the time came to write the book, it was obvious, but <laughs> I have to say it was, you know, we spent the last 10 years accumulating a lot of experience and the book is in many ways, a distillation of those experiences and a reflection on the most recent pilgrimage we took, which was the, pilgrimage we took to the Kamano Kodo mm -hmm. in Japan. And I would say too that, you know, we're, we're both academics and I think a lot of the time the work that you do as an academic is sort of brain first and mm -hmm. then you kind of process it through the brain and then you perform actually kind of a physical act of writing in a lot of ways. It's, right. it's exhausting right. and it's tiring and it's emotional. Um, but this was kind of the reverse. This was, we had this physical experience and we learned knowledge kind of on the ground. And of course, all humans learn knowledge by doing things. And I think often that today is associated with childhood or maybe a certain, uh, yeah, a younger state. And then you can start to process and cerebralize, let's say. But pilgrimage is so wonderful because it, it reminds me, at least, that my body is the engine of knowledge, mm. <laughs> very specifically. The, oh. the, the, the struggles that I go through in pilgrimage are also making my brain think different ways. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a reminder of the sort of medieval humoral system that all of that is interconnected oh, okay it's true though that in many ways i think the book is an altered state of consciousness yeah. or a record of mm -hmm. a profound operation of consciousness yeah that i have to admit when i go back and read it i'm like oh my god <laughs> that's like that's really i feel exposed because yeah, if you yeah. read my academic writing it's very sober it's empirical and value neutral when i go back and read this book it is Lots not. Lots of values in there. There's a lot of value statements, and it's very personal. And I yeah. like what you said about writing about pilgrimage begins with the physical. Mm -hmm. You begin with being on the road, with the feet hitting the ground and you know, your shoulders aching. But I shall say, you know, that physical is also metaphysical True. because you're on the pilgrimage trail, which is defined, I think, by certain 
textures of experience that are beyond the normal, mm-hmm. super normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and though I should say the book itself was written on the road. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not to go too deep into the book history, but we went over to Japan to make this pilgrimage and we scheduled like three weeks, a three week trip. And it just so happened when we were on the road, the borders to the U.S. closed as a result of the pandemic. And so we, were, yeah. we ended up staying there for many, many more weeks. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was, keeping, I was keeping notes while on the road. We always keep diaries on us when we're on the road because there are certain ideas that seem powerful. And, and as I like to say, mm. some ideas take a long time to think. Yeah. Some ideas you can't think unless you have four, five, six, seven hours of uninterrupted yeah. concentration. And that those are the type of ideas that really descend during pilgrimage. Mm. And, you know, it's, I think it's worth trying to capture those on paper <laughs> or whatever. I oh, think it, I think it definitely came through your personal, uh, strongly personal experiences came through. And I have read your academic work, so I did notice uh, uh, quite a difference uh, in tone and, and also in style even. It's, mm-hmm. It seemed like you were coming from a different place, but I, I didn't mean to interrupt you from from sharing. No, your, no, no. You're exactly your right, thought. No, but I should also say that while there's a lot of our own personal experience in the book, there's also a fair bit of book learning in it too. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't say. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we're, we had to exercise our training. You know, <laughs> we're trained as scholars, and so after we had these experiences on the road, we went back and buried ourselves in the archives. I should also say that we prepared for the pilgrimage with a pretty intense three-month intellectual regime Mm -hmm. of absorbing as much of the academic material on the Kwanakoto as we could Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Western languages. And then afterwards, we had experiences that sent us back to the archives. And and particularly, uh, I would say, after we came back and we were writing the book, finishing the book, uh, it was Michelle who really led the intellectual journey into mandala interpretation because mandalas play such an important role in the history of monokodo and uh dr owing here is (laughs) is an art historian who's specializes in the in the middle ages so i think that your expertise in the middle ages the global middle ages really helped us helped me at least uh understand some of the artistic representations and the visual culture of the monokodo in ways i wouldn't have otherwise yeah, you know, it, it was definitely a, a mix of our academic expertises, too. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about these mandala and, and the specific sort of mandala associated with this pilgrimage, which are not the kind of maybe what, what one has one's mind eye, mind's eye of a mandala, which is those sort of wonderful geometric circles and, mm. and shapes that center on a sort of Buddha figure. These are much more narrative, uh, and that was a really interesting uh, distinction for me. But I think then also... Uh, Christian, Dr. Greer, um, really dove deep into the folklore side of things, really exploring the kind of way that folklore becomes a political process and, and, a, and a cultural process as well that, you know, clearly starts with real experiences that people are having, but then can become so much more. I mean, this is the story of, of every story that has ever been told, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. it's more than a story, but well, it, yeah. It just so happens that, you know, I have, by training, I'm a scholar of esotericism, and it just so happened that that provided me with the <laughs> ideal tools mm-hmm. to look exactly. at. Exactly. Uh, if I could use the phrase, Stephanie, rejected religion <laughs> along the Kamano Kodo. You know, what, what falls outside the master right. narrative of this pilgrimage? Yeah. And that's precisely what Michelle and I focused on. 
Yeah. Um, Excellent. Excellent. Well, we are going to get into uh, a lot of these things that uh, that you've already mentioned here, briefly mentioned anyway. Uh, I have to to say, though, that the, the book, while I was reading it, I realized that there were so many different layers uh, of discussion and, and, you know, that you could spend a lot of time on each of these uh, topics mm. that you talked about and, and the attention to detail that you gave to those. However, when I was looking over my own notes that I jotted down while I was reading the book, I noticed that my for myself, I was quite interested in these liminal spaces that you entered into and the beings that you encountered there. And that's kind of where my questions were, uh, were kind of leaning towards. So I, you know, I hope that that's okay, that we, we, you know, focus a little bit, maybe a little bit more time on, on, on that type of, uh, discussion, if that's okay with, with you, uh, too. <laughs> I make a special exception. Michelle and I usually kind of dodge these questions because they're very unusual but for you, of course. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Wonderful. I am so so thrilled to, to to know that you're willing to just you know humor me and go go where I'd like to you know go there follow <laughs> you know you take your hand and we'll go this way we'll, okay Very all right nice. so okay so I I wanted to talk about the liminality because I think that's a very interesting uh, area. However, we were talking about the pilgrimage itself, so I think we probably should start there and talk a little bit about uh, pilgrimages and, and what what is the purpose. Of a of a pilgrimage, why do people do it, and is it a, is it always a religious thing? I mean, someone like me who's more of like a novice, I'm thinking, oh, pilgrimage is like uh, the Santiago de Compostela. It's more of a yeah. It's it's it. I didn't know, and that was a great thing about reading the book that there were so many other dimensions uh, about pilgrimage. But please, uh, could you expand on on these these things? Sure. So I think, you know, we're, we're moving towards liminality anyway, but I think that that's kind of a founding tenet of, of pilgrimage, at least in recent studies and recent ideas about it and theorizing about it. Uh, for example, Victor and Edith Turner really were thinking about the idea of liminality, the limin, the border, mm-hmm. as a particular quality of the pilgrimage, because the, their, their sort of idea in broad strokes is you have a normal life, you are you know, I'm going to use a medieval person here. You're like a medieval potato farmer, let's say. Okay. And uh, you decide that you really need to make this journey, let's use Santiago de Compostela, to have some kind of connection with these divine entities and spirits. Um, so you leave behind your daily life. You leave behind your wife and your kids and uh, your church community and, you know, the, the, the neighbor that, like, you owe money to and they're really mad at you. You kind of say, listen, I'm done. I leave that behind. And you get in this space where you're not known, you are not a familiar person, you don't have obligations, and you you take on this other role of the pilgrim, which is really a an identity that is is kind of universal. Everyone you meet on that road, not everyone, but many people you meet will also be pilgrims. So you enter briefly into this new mode of existence that leads to this final climax. So. I'm using an example of a medieval Christian here, but I think I don't find that pilgrimage has to be religious. I think no. that it's it's more about that decision to break from some kind of baseline existence and move towards a goal. And again, this also doesn't have to be spatial. This could be interior. There, there are many examples of sort of mystical p- pilgrimages or um 
pilgrimages in terms of, I, I think we could also talk about pilgrimages in terms of altered states and mm-hmm. kind of tripping, tripping you know, sort of pilgrimage, think, break off this normal character armor and sure. you go elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at Timothy Leary, Albert, um, Richard Alpert, and uh, Metzinger's psychedelic experience, that's framed as a pilgrimage, mm-hmm. a trip through the barter. But, you know, you know, let's return to this potato farmer who I'm now right. very invested in, and I want to know why the potato <laughs> farmer is going on a pilgrimage. And, and 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 Michelle is really the expert here. She just taught a course on medieval pilgrimage, so I'm I'm deferring to her. But it's my experience that looking in the literature of pilgrimage globally, really from antiquity to present, one theme really jumps out at me, and that is the motivation for pilgrimage mm. is often crisis. Yeah. And so maybe our medieval potato farmer has a family member that's fallen ill. Right or is looking for some type of absolution for a sin that they had committed. Or there's bad weather and That's the right. potatoes are not growing. Or they know? haven't grown for the last three seasons. Right. And so there is a sort of, I need intercession. I need divine intercession, so I'm going to do this. But there is usually a extraordinary circumstance that would then invite someone to take up the holy road. Because really until a modern period, going on pilgrimage was very dangerous that whether you're talking about medieval France or, I mean, even if we look at, the, let's return to the Camano, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Camino de Santiago de Compostela, you know, let's not forget that some of the earliest pilgrim, pilgrims along that road were braving uh, Moorish Spain in order to get to the reliquary, the, the, the remains of St. James. And, you know, if you think, well, that's probably dangerous. Well, it was dangerous. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is where we have the origins of the Templars. Mm-hmm. The Knights Templar were, in fact, originated as a military order that would protect pilgrims. On the way to Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, yeah. that's right. And then it spread to other... Uh-huh. And then you saw... Yeah, but anyway, um, and the same thing is in, it's in Japan. If you read medieval accounts of Japanese pilgrimage, um, the road is not only beset by bandits and brigands, mercenaries, there's also Tengu and Yokai and Bakemono. There's also these evil supernatural spirits that, I mean, listen, the bandits are bad, but the Tengu are worse. You know, like the next thing you know, you could be drowned by a kappa or, you know, you could be turned into a uh, radish. Uh, it, there's a lot to worry about when you're on the road. So I should say that there are, um, it, it was that sense that the road is not only full of splendor and wonder and miraculous events, but also danger that is both terrestrial and supernatural mm-hmm. mm. a quintessential unknown right you don't know what's out there exactly and and that's what makes it potent mm-hmm. that's what makes it effective as a transformative experience and i would i would be remiss if i didn't say i think that if even if we don't call it religious all pilgrimages do speak mm-hmm. to a religious impulse even if you're an elvis fan going to graceland there is a sense of seeking there's a sense of wonder. There's a sense of awe. I think that, you know, okay, for, for example, it doesn't have to be Graceland. It could be anything, a pilgrimage to anywhere. Yeah. You know, you're a baseball fan. You want to go to uh, Wrigley Field. Right. There is a sense of the quest. There's this, and I, I think that in many ways, even if we're looking at a secular travel experience, I think that is imbued, we'll say, with the sacred or imbued with religious connotations. So I don't think you can escape yeah. the metaphysical and I think, dimension. I think that word seeker would be the, the key mm-hmm. there. You're on the path for something. Right. You know, and when let's say you're going to Wrigley Field in Chicago because you're such a baseball fan. 
you would tell people that that would become your identity. Oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm on my way to Wrigley Field. You know, I'm on my way to Canterbury. I'm on my way to Hongu Taisha. All these things make you this person on a journey that has like a special valence that I I do think speaks to and shares with the sacred, no matter the destination. I mean, I was trying to put together a syllabus on, you taught this great course on pilgrimage in the middle ages. And I was trying to teach a course on pilgrimage and I was like, global, global. Yeah. I'll do a course on global pilgrimage. Six months later, <laughs> you know, I basically lost my mind because everything was pilgrimage yeah. literature. I was like, Michelle, did you know Hobbit is a pilgrimage? <laughs> Revert. I mean, oh, how, you know, and really, you know, Huckleberry Finn, oh, that's a pilgrimage. Like everything mm, became because yeah. the definition is you leave your home in search of something miraculous. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. It's hard to avoid. So I ended up never putting that syllabus together because it just ballooned into, I think, 30 something pages. So I just abandoned the project and just re- reread Kimono to scratch that itch. Well, in the book, you do mention uh, the, the notion of the, the sacramentalization of daily life uh, taken from uh, Jack Kerouac's notion about, about uh, pilgrimage. Um, this, did this play this this idea of you know making the everyday sacred? Did this play a, a, a role in, or a, you know, did this motivate you to do the to to begin with pilgrimages in, in general? Or was uh, there I'll another the long, motivation? Yeah, I'll give you the long answer, and that's yes. <laughs> uh, no, I mean no. Jack Kerouac's on the road made such a profound impression on me uh, as a young yeah. person, and I've revisited the book almost yearly since I was. 14. And if not reading Jack Kerouac's on the road, then maybe Dharma bums or the subterranean or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kerouac's approach to travel really formed the structure, you know, in my mind, which is you take to the road to find holiness. It's not in the churches. It's not in the religious books. It's not in the rituals. It's out there. It's out there waiting for you. In order to participate in this divine drama, you have to leave your home. You have to go. You have to actually do it. It's not a state of mind. It's a way of life, and you really have to participate in it. And what Jack Kerouac means, I think, by sacramentalization of everyday life is once you get outside your comfort zone, life itself takes on a different property. Things resonate on a mythic level or and I just think your, yeah. your actions become weighted in a different way mm. because you are, you are not conditioned uh, into performing the same routine functions every day. You know, if you have a day job, there are expectations that you'll show up at the same time, work more or less the same amount and then return home and rest and repeat. But when you're on the road, every day is different mm. and you're going to, you're going to be meeting different people. You're going to have different experiences in nature you're going to be interfacing with flora and fauna. Anyways, the road itself seems to be where the action is. It seems to be home to everything that is uh, super normal and supernatural and, and out of the ordinary. And I think that th- that's really what y- you'll see, I think, Kirwakian ideas sprinkled throughout the book. And there's a short meditation on the beats and travel in the introduction. So. I had to get it out of my system. I had to come clean. I'm not going to gatekeep it, you know? <laughs> I think, too, the, the, the sacramentalization of everyday life is also about a quality of attention, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. T- 
taking something that might seem mundane and like giving it a little bit of space to have its own energy in your life. And I think that that's also, as Christian was saying, on the road, mundane things like, oh, I have to walk from here to here. Okay, you're going to the grocery store. That that journey is in your mind. You know that journey. But when it's suddenly that the sort of human condition of the first time you go somewhere, it seems so far. Yeah. You walk and you're like, this is taking forever. It only said 20 minutes, but... You know, and then the next time you walk it, it's, it seems the time seems to dilate a little bit or, or the opposite of dilate. It seems shorter. It seems shorter. I don't know the fancy word for that. Um, and, uh, and so I think the sacramentalization is allowing for you to kind of pr- treat every trip that you make as the first time you've done it, allowing yourself to notice the things that are there and kind of fighting against the brain's sort of um, – desire to, to simplify for you and say, hey, maybe I don't want it quite as simple this time. Maybe I want oh things God. to be a little more complex and, and rich. Now, and I'll just say one more thing here. You put your finger on it. Being on the pilgrimage road opens the doors of perception. Mm. I can't explain why, but yeah. <laughs> food tastes better. <laughs> Jokes are funnier. The night air feels cooler. The dreams are weirder. Dreams are more vivid. There's something about it. And I, I, I mean, I assume it's something hardwired into the human brain. But the minute that you embark on some type of sacred quest, the scales fall from your eyes. Mm. And you're more of who you really are. So mm. that, that really created such a strong impulse in us. I mean, that's why we are more or less diehard pilgrimage people now and, and and nothing really holds a candle to the type of experience that we that we enjoy when we're on the road and they're not always good you yeah, know no. it's it's the whole range of experience that opens up and i think that's what makes life seem so vivid mm-hmm. you also mentioned how pilgrimage helps one to unlearn mental habits and undo behavioral patterns in this liminal zone that we've now touched upon a couple of times. Uh, so the liminal zone of the pilgrimage road uh, is is helping you to kind of develop new ways of thinking, new perceptions. Could you talk more about this and, and what this means for you? Yeah. I, I don't know if I mentioned that. I think some thoughts take a long time to think. When you're on the pilgrimage road, you have a luxurious amount of free time. And what I've realized is that some ideas take five, six, seven, or even eight hours to think, and they can't be thought in any shorter times. So you can't think these ideas when you're commuting to work. You can't think about them on your lunch break. They're too big. And in many ways, they could be too destructive. Mm. You know, coming to the realization that you're unhappy (laughs) at your job well, okay, you could come to that realization maybe quite quickly if your job is really bad. But there are some large-scale, profound thoughts that can only arise in the quietude of sustained concentration. And so I think that that's what the pilgrimage road provides, is a rare opportunity to reflect deeply on the patterns that structure your life, as well as the life that has arisen out of those patterns. And this is why, you know, uh, crisis can be the impetus to go on pilgrimage, but crisis can also follow when you return home. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a section of the book where we talk about what we call the prisoners of St. James. (laughs) St. James, of course, is the saint who is interned in Santiago. The the whole point of the Camino de Santiago is to arrive at the remains of St. James. Anyways, prisoners of... St. James are the people who have 
gone on pilgrimage and had such a meaningful transformative experience that they cannot return to their everyday life. And so they quit their job and they become permanent pilgrinos. You know, they, they either run pilgrimage hostels, they set up as tour guides, they become professional travel writers. Um, we, in the book, we talk about a couple that used to live in Tokyo and lived kind of office job lives and did the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, had their minds blown, spirit unleashed, eyes of the heart <laughs> opened, and were unable when they returned back to Japan to continue as office workers. Mm. And so what they did was they more or less did what all religious <laughs> fanatics do. They dropped out <laughs> and they opened up a little pilgrimage hostel along the Kumano Kota and we stayed with them and we got to share our experiences and what it means to really have pilgrimage change your life. It's, it's really a cool, if you're one of these people, it's such a cool community to belong to mm. because it's conversion narrative. Yeah, very much so. I think too, again, returning to this idea that I find so fascinating about the pilgrimage is the body and unlearning daily habits is also unlearning for me, at least a daily habit of, of just brain work, just kind of um, reading and writing and, and talking and reminding myself about the way that the body enables and, and fuels all of those, all of those parts of, of the self. And so th- we, we talk a little bit in the book about kind of the, the sort of eating regimen also that that becomes very important on pilgrimage, obviously, because you're doing a lot of physical activity, mm-hmm. but, but also sort of unlearning this idea of like meal times or um, what things you should eat and when you should eat and, and really just allowing the body to be like, no, I need this now from you. I need to have a little bite. I need a little bit of sugar and really kind of, so, so for me, I guess it's, I'm, I'm speaking on, I realize now almost kind of a relationship of like two beasts living inside of me. <laughs> and <laughs> as an academic, the beast is the sort of brain beast. And then I remember, oh no, I've got this like wonderful, you know, sweaty, farty, funny, fleshy. fleshy body that also needs things from me. And those those get to like play together mm. in a different way. <laughs> so you're like learning yeah. how to listen to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What's great is, you know, you're burning about 20,000 calories <laughs> yeah. while you're on the road every day. And wow. so for me, at least, it reintroduced feasting. Yeah. I So, you know, we have breakfast and then three hours later, we'll have second breakfast, <laughs> which is like cured meats, maybe a... A block of cheese. A nice big bread. A nice big bread and like, you know, a few swigs of wine. And then... <laughs> 10 a.m. wine. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, uh, noon rolls around. You're like, well, it's time for lunch. And, you know, and just this mentality of enjoying food when you're hungry, stopping without any pressure to get up and go. You spend as long as you need. Maybe you'll take a little nap. You move at a different pace and moving at a different pace in a physical sense whether you're resting for a long time or walking for a long time, changes the thoughts you have. Mm -hmm. And this is why I've always liked the idea of pilgrimage becoming popular as a means of treating psychological maladies. Mm. You know, we talked about crisis being the impetus for travel. I think to this day, when you talk to people on the road, um, often you'll find people have very tragic stories or you'll hear people say, oh, I walk this. And it was a means of alleviating the pre- the um, my depression or my anxiety. So I think there are physical health benefits to mm. this particular practice, and I think that explains why it's been around for so long. Yeah. You know, that's that's why you find it cross country, uh, cross culturally, because yeah. Yeah. it. I think it really induces a higher state, a more healthy state of physical, mental, spiritual well being. Mm. 
Moving to talk now a little bit about the book itself. The text speaks to the reader in the first person, and yet you wrote the book together. So how did you actually write the book? And why did you choose not to specify in your writing who is doing the speaking? Well, uh, sort of to speak to the question of the process of writing the book, as we mentioned, it was a lot of it was on the road or immediately after the road when we were sort of in this another liminal state of being uh, in Japan. And we were in Kyoto for a lot of that because we have some dear friends and members of the pilgrimage confraternity there. Um, So it was a lot of time just to sort of process this, Mm. a really luxury of time to process this that often isn't the case when we have in previous times have come back from pilgrimage. It's right back to something. Um, And then that process continued. So there's kind of, there's kind of like this period of collecting raw data. And what was interesting there is that I found that we often wrote about similar moments, or even if they were about different moments, there were very strong thematic parallels Hmm. that it wouldn't have made sense to have, you know, sort of both, both of those um, separate. And it made a lot more sense to put them together. And, and out of that became much richer sort of third mind um, text, I think that, that, you know, also speaks to, to the longer history of our intellectual and personal relationship, which, or I should say personal relationship, which has always also been intellectual Mm. um, among many other things. Yeah. Also some of the weirder moments on pilgrimage is when, at least I've been struck by the fact that Michelle and I are in like total telepathic accord <laughs> and it sounds really funky and weird, but it's like, how do you explain sharing thoughts yeah. on paper? It's, it's unusual. It's uncanny, mm-hmm. but it seems to happen with some regularity with, with pilgrims and particularly with, with Michelle and I. And it just, it wasn't something we discussed beforehand when we were writing the book. It just took that editorial turn, which is like, yeah, that that's that was my experience too. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also say that we edited. You know, the book goes through a number of editorial phases, and at one okay, so we shared a lot of experiences. So we wrote the book from a shared first person perspective. Another reason why we kept that perspective across the drafts is because you edit and re-edit and mm-hmm. re-edit. It becomes impossible to determine who wrote what yeah. at what point. The book becomes a shared project. And I, I think see. there's something. So, of course, we have a metaphysical answer, and then we have a practical answer. Um, and then, of course, there's a spiritual answer, which is, I think, at its best, the road offers an opportunity to build, to rebuild your identity. And I think that earlier you talked about these two very famous anthropologists, the Turners, who introduced the term liminality into the anthropological lexicon uh how would you define that liminality for me it's the communitas Mm -hmm. that is built on the road and in fact this is what the turners were talking about that you leave your home you enter a liminal zone that liminal zone is defined by unknowing the mysterious as well as a new social unit and that social unit is the pilgrimage the pilgrim confraternity the pilgrim communitas and because we were taking a pilgrimage during the global pandemic, we were unable really to commune with as many people as we would have liked to, as many pilgrims as we would have liked to, but that didn't prevent us from building our own communitas. Um, and in fact, Kurt Vonnegut has a word for a communitas of two. <laughs> so if you know this very fantastic science fiction writer, Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. in his book, Cat's Cradle, 
he refers to a depress, which is a two-person utopia or a two-person <laughs> mental shared mental space. <laughs> and so Michelle and I, I remember reading that many, many years ago and being like, hey, Michelle, they have a name for what we do. <laughs> they have a name for telepathic socialism yeah. for two people. And it's, it's a depress. And so in many ways, it's a meditation on mind melding and and it, yeah, it's 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 uh, experimental writing, which we hope, which we hope lends. Uh, Stephanie, what did you think? Was it confusing for you at any not point? Not at all. No. Oh, okay. not at all. But you know, now that it, that you're explaining this about the uh, you know feeling like you could like be in the same head uh, together or in a like in a third mind that you joined together, just kind of as an aside, just popped into my head when I was you know living in my other lifetime. Uh, in the world of ballet, um, I danced a lot with particular uh, people, you know, kind of had a dance partner. And there would be times where we would be dancing and we're not watching each other, but and even in improvisation, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And it just seems to make sense. And you're not thinking about it. It's not a conscious decision it just happens it just you feel i'm going to do this movement and you both do it at the same time and someone else watching kind of thinks hmm but wait a minute you didn't rehearse that why yeah. is this happening all of the time so i i see where you're coming from it it when you are when you are uh working so closely with or in in uh, you know traveling with someone or you're you spend a lot of time with someone i think that probably quite easily happens for people in in, in 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 other areas as well not just in dancing or in writing but you know probably in other aspects as well that that i guess it's attunement that that coming mm. together so but thank you for for explaining that because that yeah the thought hadn't popped into my head before you mentioned this so yeah i think that that really uh makes sense no, and, and Stephanie, what you said about your training in ballet really has made it sharper in my mind, too. And it really demonstrates that perhaps it's not so unusual yeah. to enter into these states, these flow states. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's really cool to hear you, how your experience resonates with that as well. It's, it's, thanks for that. I'm happy to, to share completely, well, in my mind, completely irrelevant uh, information <laughs> during our interview. <laughs> go completely go off and on a tangent here, but okay, we come back around. Um, let's move now to the Kumano Kodo itself. What is this route for, for the people who, who are not familiar? Why is it such an important pilgrimage in Japan? Well, yeah, how, how do I put this up? Uh, Imagine in your mind's eye, you know, a map of Japan. And so the Kumano Kodo is located on Honshu, which is the largest island in the Japanese archipelago. And particularly, it's in the Key Peninsula, which is just southeast of Kyoto and Osaka in a heavily forested area. In fact, it is typically classified as a rainforest. That's how dense the mm. flora is in the Key Peninsula. And it is especially mountainous. So you have a mountainous rainforest uh, right here on the on Honshu. And the Komodo Kodo is the name for the trail that links a number of sacred 
places. Uh, the most sacred amongst these places are three holy mountains. Um, these, the trio is called Kumano Sanzen. San is three, Zen is mountain. So the three mountains of Kumano. And so the pilgrimage is really the trail linking these three holy mountains and the shrines on them. Okay. So the first major shrine, Hongu Taisha, that's the main shrine. And then from Hongu, you proceed to the second main shrine, that's Hayatama Taisha. And then the third and final shrine is uh, Nachi, Nachi Taisha, which Nachi Taisha has a pretty unique, I think, geographical element, which is it's a it's next to a huge waterfall, a very powerful waterfall, which, according to pilgrimage folklore, uh, has the soul of a dragon entombed in it. But I should say that each one of the holy mountains, each one of the principal shrines of the Kamano Kodo has its own cosmology. Mm. It has its own retinue of gods, its own religious story. And so you can just focus on one of the shrines and write a whole book, but the pilgrimage leads you between those three. I should also say that those three shrines are encircled by dozens and dozens and dozens of additional spiritual places. So there is, um, we talk about Unomine, which is a ancient hot springs valley town. And people have been going to this particular hot springs oasis, you know, since time immemorial. And the accumulation of legends and myths around the healing property of these hot thermal baths is just incredible and funny <laughs> and amazing. And I don't think they're wrong. I do think that these, <laughs> these ancient thermal baths do have a curative property. Oh, yeah. but, but more than that um, are some of the more parochial <laughs> customs, which is you go to Unomine, again, which is just a small little valley, not even a town, smaller than a town, a village that has just, you know, as many hot springs as you can think of running through the middle of town. And, and how, does, how does life proceed in Unomine? Well, everybody comes out and boils their eggs in the hot springs. <laughs> they use the hot spring water to make beer. Uh, it's used rice porridge, rice porridge, ramen broth. The, the whole little area, the whole village is hot and it's onsen focused. Yes. <laughs> and I have to say that that's really magical in its own way. And of course you have esoteric Buddhism. The seat of esoteric Buddhism in Japan is also in the Ki Peninsula. So Shingon Buddhism has its principal monasteries there as well as um, Shugendo, which is a, it's often known as a the Japanese folklore religion, folk religion, but I think it's a little more complicated than that. I should say, though, that the Kumano Kodo pilgrimage is a Shinto pilgrimage. That is to say, it is colored, or the, the narrative of the Kumano Kodo is based on the indigenous religious belief system of Japan, which is Shinto. Okay.
Well, this, I guess this uh, leads me into my next question uh, about kind of this uh, narrative that you mentioned. Uh, one of the primary aims in your book was, quote, to interrogate and destabilize UNESCO's master narrative, end quote. And I, when I first started reading this, I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? I was kind of, I was <laughs> slightly confused with UNESCO. What is, but then it became, very, UNESCO. <laughs> it became very clear uh, as I kept reading, of course. But what is this UNESCO caper about and how did it affect the Kumano region after World War II and the narratives around it? Well, yeah, there's this, I should, I should explain. There's a section of our book called the UNESCO caper. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really in- invoking uh, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch here. Where he describes a number of capers <laughs> and sort of kind of a uh, schlocky detective novel. Uh, sadly, that chapter is not schlocky detective novel. It's, Pretty hardcore historical research. Yeah, and I should say, it. His, yeah, this account you've written is is sort of the the one of the first of of the whole thing. You know, it's it's not it's not general knowledge. Uh, this sort of the way that UNESCO operates, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I feel pretty good uh, <laughs> making some minor granular contribution to the history of Kumano Kodo. In a nutshell, the Kumano Kodo itself is based on Shinto, and it's claimed to be Japan's oldest pilgrimage. However, that claim is less historically based than it is religiously based, Mm. which is to say that if you look at the mythological record of Japan, this was first uh, written down in, in the Kojiki, which is a record of ancient things, and that was published in like 712, in, in the 8th century. And basically it tells the history of the divinity of the Japanese people. And the story is based on two creator gods, you know, the, cre- the gods that created the universe land first in Japan. This is Izanagi and Izanami. So these are two creator gods and they land in the key peninsula of Japan. So the first place that the gods touch down after creating Earth is in the key peninsula. And over time, the creator goddess, um, Izanami, dies And Izanagi, the creator god, ventures to the underworld in an attempt to resurrect his lover and and bride and fails and returns to Earth. He's still, all of this is taking place in the Key Peninsula. And he's covered in the mud of the underworld. (laughs) I love that Mm. image. And he takes a bath in these hot springs and the mud that falls off becomes the first earthborn kami the first earthborn gods in the Shinto pantheon. Oh, okay. And amongst these kami, you have, you know, every variety, but there's two that we focus on. One is Amara Tarasu, who is the parent of the Japanese people. So the Japanese people, according to Shinto, uh, Shinto myth or Shinto doctrine, uh, Amara Tarasu is the parent of uh, Nihonjin. So they, they derive from, religious, godlike ancestors. Um, and he gives birth to Jimo, who becomes the first emperor of Japan. And subsequently, all subsequent emperors would be divinities. They would be direct descendants of Jimu, Amaterasu, going back to Izanagi and Izanami. Well, the divine creator gods had another kid. <laughs> this, this would be Amaterasu's brother. Okay? Jimu, the first emperor's uncle. 
bad news. Apparently, <laughs> if you read if you read these uh, mythological accounts of the birth of the Japanese people, Susano O is a ghoul. Susano <laughs> O is a monster. Susano is is the bad sheep. The black sheep. The bad guy. And Jimu, the first emperor, founds the Yama, uh, Yamanote. Uh, Yamato dynasty, you know, the Japanese imperial line by defeating Suzano O. So reading over these myths, I was like, well, you know, tell me a little bit more about Suzano O. Like, he, he commands an army of werewolves? Like, what? <laughs> like, he's a shapeshifter. He is unclean. He's a, he, apparently, he tells lewd jokes. <laughs> he gets too drunk. And I thought, okay, well, there's probably a socio-historical level to this myth. Maybe Susano O represents the, pe- the, the people who are native to the Japanese archipelago before uh, migrations came in and changed the um, racial demographic of the archipelago. Maybe they were the indigenous people. And how do you explain the pre-existence of indigenous beliefs? Well, you would say, oh, these are the other. This is mm. the other guy. So right. that's a possibility. And there's a number of different explanations of who Susano O might be standing in for. Mm. But the key here is that Susano O represents the other. And so as we wrote the book, we thought, oh, wow, that's a really interesting point of departure for understanding the experiences that we have. Because this is a Shinto pilgrimage. For, and Shinto, of course, is the native belief of Japan. Well, in fact, the Japanese people had so many different belief systems, Shinto was introduced in the 8th century as a means of consolidating this galaxy of different local belief systems under the, under the hierarchy of the Divine Emperor. Anyways, Susano O is a great focal point for us to tell our own story mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily beholden to Shinto legend. Now let's jump to UNESCO. UNESCO, in 2004, recognizes the Kumano Kodo as a universal World Heritage Site. The Kumano Kodo in 2004 becomes the second pilgrimage recognized by the UN as having universal value for every human on Earth. The story of how the Kumano Kodo became the second UNESCO World Heritage Site that's a pilgrimage is fascinating, and this is where I think I contributed something new to the story, which is, in a nutshell, the first site, the first pilgrimage site recognized by UNESCO is the, de, is the Camino de Santiago de Compostela that snakes its way through northwest Spain. Well, that was made a <laughs> world a UNESCO heritage site under the aegis of Federico Zaragoza, who was the head of UNESCO for a number of years. And it was really his, I think, natural brilliance at planning and organizing that allowed him to transform this impoverished region of Spain into one of the most visited sites on Earth. Right, because UNESCO, United Nations organization, but it is made up of nations. <laughs> and Zaragoza right. was Spain, right? And mm-hmm. so he had kind of national interest oh, in yeah. what was going on. And he was the head of UNESCO, so he right. thought, you know what I should do? Yeah. <laughs> Revitalize this part of Spain that has in- important historical um, patrimony. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways, it just so happens I did a little digging, and I didn't know this, but UNESCO... How do you become director of UNESCO? Apparently, you pay an enormous bribe to the former director of UNESCO. <laughs> I mean, technically, it's there's a vote. Yeah, yes, there's a vote, <laughs> and it seems as though Federico Zaragoza refused to cast his vote for his replacement until someone gave him a little taste. Uh-huh. You know, someone was willing uh-huh. to front the money. 
And Zaragoza asked for the highest amount that a UNESCO director had ever asked for. And so there was some debates. Eventually, a very enterprising diplomat from Japan, uh, Koichiro Matsuda, was able to reschedule the vote for the next head of UNESCO on his home turf. He was a political attaché stationed in Paris, so they had the vote for the next head of UNESCO in Paris, and he was able to put up more money than the other competitors. I tell the story in the book. And so basically we have a Koichiro wins the directorship and follows Zaragoza's playbook. Zaragoza made a playbook when he coined the first World Heritage Pilgrim Site, the Camino. Matsuda did the same thing, but he did it in the Key Peninsula with the Kumano Code. And here he faced a really tight situation because this is a more or less ethnically exclusive religion, Shinto. It's very difficult for anybody who isn't Japanese to claim to be Shinto. Mm-hmm. And so how do you have a world heritage site that is based on a sort of racial exclusivity? Well, Matsuda has the brilliant idea of, okay, let's downplay the Shinto elements and play up the eco-tourist elements. Let's recast this pilgrimage as an eco-tourism adventure. And the crowning jewel of this ideology would be Shinrin Yukio, which is forest bathing. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this term, Stephanie, forest bathing? I'm sorry, I was on muted. Yes, I have. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, I mean, what comes to it. mind, you know, when people say to- uh, forest bathing? Uh, I think in the context of the article that I uh, read about this topic was that it was supposed to help alleviate uh, the stresses of your day-to-day life, your busy work day, uh, just, you know, everybody is kind of, yeah, busy with uh, with everything and it's kind of weighs heavily on you and you have to kind of release all of the tension and the stress and you go into the forest where the where of course you're encountering nature and this is supposed to have a soothing and healing property uh just being in this in this environment has this i guess a a healing aspect to it you get fresh air um you have the beauty around you uh that's kind of my memory of how it was brought yeah, exactly. And it's a beautiful idea. Really, the idea yeah. is that you would luxuriate in the natural world. Mm-hmm. The sight and sounds of nature have a natural healing effect on you. But you have to really give yourself, like in a bath, <laughs> you have to really surrender to mm. the good vibrations here. <laughs> Anyways, uh, long story long, <laughs> um, UNESCO created a new narrative for the Kumano Kodo. Oh. Okay. That is ecotourism. So come and do this hike. And one of the local flavors is the religious element. But don't worry too much about that religious element. Really focus on the nature bathing and the and Shinto itself does have does venerate the natural world as the site mm-hmm. of supernatural intelligence. So one of the key principles of Shinto is recognizing. Um, it's basically, it's been referred to as an animist worldview because there are spirits living in everything from the teapot right, to right, the right. ancient bell to this mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, the natural world is alive with Kami. And so I think that's another added inducement mm-hmm. to take this particular eco tour. 
Yeah, and I would say too that another part of the UNESCO, because the uh, Kumano was really very much based on the way that the Camino was set up, there is also this appeal to the authority of the past. So this idea of oldest, right? Christian has talked about how that is also tied with the story of like world creation. But then there's also the specific like medieval, like, oh, this is something that medieval people did. And I think, you know, as a medievalist, the Middle Ages has so many different valences today, but one of them often is a kind of a funny sort of authenticity, this idea that somehow people in the Middle Ages lived a simpler life. Um, you know, I use the example of the medieval potato farmer, though I should note potatoes didn't arrive in Europe till the 16th century. <laughs> so I'm realizing now I have to correct myself. What? Even onion farmers. Tubers or what, what? Yeah, maybe some local tubers. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so that. Or he's from 1529. That's fine. Okay. We'll allow that. But um, that there's a simplicity there. And, um, you know, globally, even, um, I think a lot of religions appeal to a kind of medieval period, let's say like 10th, 11th, 12th century to talk about, oh, this is the time when people were really pious. And that could be in, in Islam, that could be in Christianity, that could be in Judaism. There could, there's all these senses of like in the past, right? Things mm. were purer and stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think they use that both with the Camino and the Kumano, um, even though as, as Christian dis uh, sort of discovered, what, what that also can lead to is a kind of complete jumping over of everything that has happened since let's say 1400, you know, with, with World War II, and um, I'll let you talk about this, but the, the Key Peninsula particularly became a kind of um, resource and, and, and an aggressively overused resource as Japan was trying to rebuild after World War II. Yeah, well, you see the same thing in Spain with the Camino de Santiago that you see in Japan, which is to say, before it was revitalized, as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the region had really fallen into disrepair and deprivation. Mm. And it was amongst the poorest regions in Spain until it was revitalized as a world destination for religious heritage. And now it's, I think there's upwards of 400,000 people going every year, or at least that was the number before 2019. 400,000 people walking the community of Santiago every year that is a tourist boom. It's mm -hmm. going to make any city planner yeah. drool. <laughs> and that's precisely what you saw with the Key Peninsula, which, okay, okay, they glamorize the Middle Ages because they don't have to talk about the very bad practices that define the... But, you know, as I discovered, the Key Peninsula became the, the site for natural resources that could be exploited to mm -hmm. rebuild Japan after World War II. People think of Nagasaki and Hiroshima as the two places that experienced ultimate devastation as a result of Americans using nuclear weapons. Well, that's true, but the Americans were conducting a bombing campaign across the country. So the country, a lot of it had to be rebuilt from the ground up. And where did they get the natural supplies for that? The rainforest of the Key Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And so while it is still a rainforest today, a lot of the um, a, a large sections of it are in fact just tree plantations. Mm -hmm and trees that aren't necessarily indigenous to the region. So anyways, okay. And then at one point in the, in the 70s, it turned into what they called a trash mountain. Yeah. You know, dealing with trash in Japan is very difficult. There are very strict regulations about what you can recycle and what you can't. So people would just drive truckloads of garbage out to this remote area and just dump. So it became this fetid, disgusting trash world. And um, the story of how a number of Shugendo monks fought back against illegal dumpers. It's really cool. It's in the book. But the 
the process to revitalize the Kumano Kota was not started by city planners and Kochiro Matsuda. It was actually started by a number of monks, Shugendo monks in the Key Peninsula, who then did a local effort that raised so much attention that you had a diplomat say, ooh, yeah. <laughs> we can capitalize on this grassroots movement and turn this into a new Camino de Santiago. This was super interesting part of the book, which was what I was referring to before about the really surprising aspect of how politics play a, a large role in this uh, in this story of the Kumano Kodo and how it had been uh, once a pristine area turned into this basically dumping ground a dump and and that yeah out of that came this this new narrative um of restoration and um i guess yeah does it can you also link this with then this ancient or this older idea of the the pristine or the pure going back to that that state can we can we Absolutely. speak of that and, and, and that's i think that's what the uses of the middle ages yeah mm. by focusing on the middle ages you can really present a narrative of pristine nature, a time before industrialization. And that's what you'll be returning to when you come here. Uh-huh. You don't yeah. have to breathe the exhaust fumes of cars. <laughs> you don't have to live in concrete. You stay in these very comfortable tatami room, I would say, historical mm-hmm. buildings. You know, um, But I should say, this is one of the best things. When, when we're on the road and we meet these hardcore pilgrims that are like, Oh, we're pilgrims. We skip lunch like they did in the Middle Ages. We're authentic, <laughs> spiritual pilgrims. We don't drink alcohol. And Michelle's like, oh, I have to stop you there. I'm a medievalist. Michelle, you have told me stories about pilgrims on the road acting foolish. Yeah, there are some of the earliest, you know, guidebooks about pilgrimage are also like, don't be a jerk. Like, <laughs> you know, pilgrims would, uh, you know, steal and they'd be, they'd have sex, you know, for the first time with someone, you know, in some new town and they would uh, just drink too much and be too rowdy and really cause problems. Um, And then also, you know, as a result, also you have both in medieval Europe and then as we discovered in our research in medieval Japan, you would also have this culture of, let's say, innkeepers or sort of people who worked in the pilgrim industry, the pilgrim tourist industry, who would also exploit pilgrims, you know, Mm -hmm. they would steal Mm -hmm. from them and they would kind of do that move where you invite someone and you say, oh, no, this this piece of bread is free. And then at the end you say, well, but you didn't pay for the sardines or whatever. And those, yeah, I mean, and those cost $20 million. <laughs> what's clear is that, you know, there's so many different uses of the Middle Ages. And pilgrims today, I think, want to acquire a sort of prestige mm. by roughing it. And let mm. me tell you, what I've read about pilgrims, particularly in Japan, they were not roughing it. No. They were gambling. Travel. They were singing. They were dallying with prostitutes. They were partying. They were going nude. Uh, there's actually a, a term, which is um, nuke mari. And the professor, Helen Hardiker, my old professor at Harvard, a specialist in Japanese culture, religion, and folklore, uh, in her book, Shinto, talks about how pilgrimage became such a raucous affair. <laughs> it's almost like a spring break. Yeah. And nuke mari is uh-huh. when you would have run through a town, people in the field would be like, what's all that singing? What's all that dancing? They would say, oh, the pilgrims are coming. They'd drop their hose, they'd drop their books, and just join what essentially I refer to as a mile-long conga line <laughs> that would just snake out of the city, and pe- workers would leave, students would leave, and you'd never see them again. They would run away from home because the pilgrimage trail had become such an uproarious, jovial affair. Mm. And 
the story of these nuke marius are just so fun mm-hmm. because it really upends this idea of the sanctimonious you know uh threadbare yeah like pi- piety can take so many different forms and <laughs> ecstasy and joy is yeah. one of one that's most apparent to me in fact <laughs> Yeah. This is all super interesting, and I would I would really highly recommend people to actually read the book to get the the full uh, story about all of this because this was, uh, like I said, very surprising, but also quite enlightening uh, material that I didn't expect that I was going to have that in depth uh, of a history. Uh, quite mm. shocking as well. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. You speak of certain spirits that uh, one can encounter on the route, and we've already talked about the Susano O. And keeping with the with the idea of of the spirits, could you talk uh, about or a little bit more about what happened to you during the periods of uh, what you termed intensive concentration and the spirit visitations of entities known as the Daru or Daru? I'm not quite certain how to pronounce that word yeah so i guess um we should say too that the book is kind of in it's sort of in two halves or three sections which is sort of funny math but (laughs) so we do this kind of deep dive into what pilgrimage is and uh the unesco caper and some of the sort of what what we can learn about the kumano kodo from sort of extant literature and extant folklore and extant political situations. And then the second half of the book is really sort of our travel notes. It's our experiences on the road organized by the days that we did them really. Um, And going into the kind of granular descriptions of of what we were doing, but also then zooming up right into the stars as we talk about, about dreams and and other, and and, and also the celestial realm as we talk about um, encounters with, with different spirits. So, the, the Daru was an interesting one because it was actually one of those experiences where something happened to us as we were walking. We had this deep sense of dread and anxiety and the whole world seemed to get a little bit grayer and darker. And, you know, we got through that moment um, with a snack, actually, was the final savior was we arrived somewhere where we could get a snack. And uh, the tour guide. In the, and we, and, um, and sorry, the... Yeah, so... Yeah, well, I was just saying, uh, we eventually made it to a rest stop. Oh, right. And of all the people that we could have encountered at the rest stop, there is one more or less media figure that Michelle and I really enjoy. His name is Mike Rhodes, and he works for the Kitanabe Tourist Bureau, and he's made a number of short videos that are really fun explaining some of the different areas and some of the different customs that you should employ when visiting sacred sites. So very informational, but he has a great energy to him. Yeah. And he's really fun to watch. And Michelle and I were taking copious notes about his sources and what he was saying. And so we'd had this awful day and who awaited us after next to the vending machines. Next to it was this guy, Mike Rhodes, who, who, you know, of course he's a local figure. He yeah. lives there. Of course you're going to see him. But, but I should say though, that the first half of the book is intellectual. It is a, reassessment of what pilgrimage is it is a literature review of not only pilgrimage literature but the literature on the kumano kodo and it's this yeah the unesco caper my little detective story about (laughs) uncovering the secret history or whatever and then the second half of the book is much more 
travel writing. Yeah, it's travel writing. Um, a little more fun, and you know, it's not so uptight. You know, I think we're having a lot more fun in the second half <laughs> because it's our day-to-day journal entries mm-hmm. that offer a guide. We call it a speculative guide because we're not here to give you advice about where mm-hmm. to stay. We're here just to mention, oh, that rock has this mystical association, which we didn't necessarily resonate with. Whereas this Jizo statue knocked us over. And I should say the Daru, D-A-R-U, the mm-hmm. Daru are a famous entity mm-hmm. that live along the Kamanokoto. So famous, in fact, that if you buy the official tour guide book, the official Kitanabe Bureau tour book, it has a whole section on the Daru. How many tour books do you know have a section about inch supernatural beings that will assault you? That we'll, you'll probably run into. Not many. And we thought, oh, that's funny. You know, like, wow, local right. color. Right. There we were on this stretch. And all of a sudden, my perception was distorted. I had trouble walking. I was like, ooh, what's happening? You know, very uncomfortable. It was extremely uncomfortable. And I thought, like, my blood sugar is low or whatever. And, it, and I thought, oh, my God, you know. This is exactly what the guidebook described as the Daru, mm-hmm. particularly on this passage. And I was like, there's something about that that resonated. And then we don't, we have a multi-tiered, or as I like to call it, a polyfocal approach to spirits, which is on one level, we tell what happened to us. We're not here to explain it away. So mm-hmm. we narrativize what we felt was the case. And then on another level, I think we in, engage these beings as psychological states. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we talk about the anxiety we felt and some of the psychological pressure. Um, and then we look at it um, in terms of the history, that how have other people across space and time explained these unusual encounters? And so we, we don't limit ourselves to one particular point of view. Mm-hmm. We are curious mm-hmm. as to looking at every different dimension of something as unusual as the dark without coming to a final conclusion. Right. Because right. that would be kind of boring. And then we'd be, <laughs> we'd be trying to convince you that we have the answer. We most certainly do not have the answer. <laughs> and the Daru represent one amongst many of these supernatural states slash entities that, that live on the Kamado and everybody recognizes us living there. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that Michelle and I dug out of an ancient tome at Miskatonic <laughs> right. University, you know, <laughs> This is this is in the brochure. <laughs> I'm curious uh, when you speak with other pilgrims on the road about your your experience. So you kind of share your experiences together. I wonder if I mean this is just off the top of my head. I wonder if whether or not you've noticed that spirit encounters can be different for different people from different places. If that makes sense, like. Uh, for example, uh, if if a Japanese pilgrim would have a completely different experience being from that area and being, you know, brought up with the with the traditions and with the folklore, et cetera, et cetera, if their interpretation is different than perhaps your interpretation, or someone from Germany, or someone from Brazil, or do the I guess what I'm asking is, do the spirits like present themselves differently to different people? Or do you notice the narratives always seem to kind of be the same with regards to the experiences that these encounters uh, bring forth? I'd say we, we have much more experience on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. So we've walked that a number of times. Okay. And, and more fellow pilgrim conversations. Again, you oh, know, okay. the time 
that we were walking the Kumano um, was just before the sort of full pandemic. That's so, right. Yeah. 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 And on the Camino de Santiago, not to make, not to sound so trite, but miracles become commonplace. That's true. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah, it's, it's what makes the Camino so cool, but hmm. you really see extraordinarily moving stories about healing or resolution or, you know, yeah, as I said, the Camino has been around for so long and has attracted so many people because it seems to work. And part of that working is extraordinary interventions. And so um, it's, yeah, it's funny that you, you talk to pilgrims on the Camino and they're like, it's a, it's a, it's a miracle a day. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, okay, you can, uh, your tinnitus healed, you know, oh, wow, you know, blah, blah, blah. My eczema cleared up, which actually. Yeah, that did happen to me. <laughs> uh, because I think you're forced to walk so much, I think people have injuries that they wouldn't otherwise have. And there just happens to be a number of shrines along the way for those injuries. So I remember we were walking the um, Via Tolosana, which is through the Camargue, which is like a French swamp, very hot, mosquito, and uh, Michelle suffered an injury and had to make it, it was heat rash so it's a skin a skin disease mm-hmm. or not disease, skin problem and it just so happens that one of the major p- saints associated with that route is in montpellier uh saint roche who was associated also with uh healing uh people during the plague so he's kind oh. of the thing for skin diseases and as soon as i went into that church and left a little offering <laughs> yawn another miracle <laughs> stephanie <laughs> Blah, blah, blah. But I, I should say, though, that I think you, you you ask a great question. And yes, I do think that everyone's going to have a different experience. And some people will very much take a, a one, a single approach and say, I, uh, the fresh air has helped my um, skin heal. You know, they'll, they'll say, they'll, they'll read it in a certain right. way that makes sense for their worldview and how they want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I was going to give you an image, I think that the second half of our book is this travel log, and when we do have these unusual experiences, it's kind of like a palimpsest. Mm-hmm. If you think about like animation cells, you stack one on top yeah. of the other, on top of the other, and you look through all three, and you see what comes out the other side. That That's really our approach, because it's much more inviting. It, it opens the conversation right. instead of shutting right. it down, and that's what we're interested about, because, again, we don't have a horse in the race. We don't have the final answer, and we don't have any reason to promote one over the other. And I think that's just good old-fashioned empiricism. It's good old-fashioned. <laughs> exactly. Here's what happened to me. Here's the evidence. I, I really can't draw a conclusion because it's too weird. You know, it's what Egil Esperum calls the problem of disenchantment. <laughs> it's not a process. This thing is just like, it's a problem because I don't know whether I'm disenchanted or not at the moment. <laughs> but I think that, for me, the most important part is the receptivity making yourself receptive enough to be able to understand these things on more than one level. That's the key. That's what makes for, I think, a very transformative experience instead of going in there, you know. Though, also, let me say, going in as a hard-headed materialist and then having your mind broken, that's pretty cool, too. (laughs) Or to go in as, like, a hardcore New Ager looking for the power spots and being like, yeah, I didn't find any. Like, that's also cool, too. Like, I think it's the potential for change is equally as interesting as the palimpsest view. So mm-hmm. Michelle and I, you maybe get a sense of how we run our spiritual, our pilgrimage confraternity. <laughs> it's let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, we were just interested right, in every right. experience out there from the sublime to the mundane. Excellent. 
You mentioned in the book, uh, of course, the, you already mentioned here, uh, that in the book there are your field uh, notations, uh, but that these are intercut with dream visions. And I really liked this this blending of, of the two. Could you talk more about why you made this particular choice to include the dreams and the dream visions? I mean, I think on a, on an extremely basic level, uh, every time that we've walked pilgrimages, our dreams have become so vivid and memorable and strange. And that felt, and, and also yeah, returning again to this idea of thoughts taking a long time to think dream interpretation self dream interpretation also takes a long time oh, and, yeah. and those images also another palimpsest become overlaid on the day that you just had or the day that you're going to have i mean you can think about dreams as as sort of processing things that have happened and some in, in other ways they can be prophetic so there there are the dream became another text that i had on the road Ooh. to think about what i was going through and and again also i mean not to bring this up again but it is it was the beginning of the pandemic and for me personally I was also having these really intense dreams that were fueled by sort of apocalyptic visions Mm -hmm. of the world and of disease and of pain and so blending Mm -hmm. that in with also the kind of beauty and the natural beauty and the and the feeling of some kind of spiritual visitation happening really was a rich soil for for this new text to arise that Mm -hmm. that I could think back with and, and move with as I moved along the road. Yeah, I mean, in fact, if you, the the dream visions are a lot of fun. They're short vignettes and where we attempt to convey the power of some of these dreams and Michelle has some and I have some and... But you'll never know who's or who's. You'll never know who's or who's, but you know, (laughs) how many times in my life do I get to tell someone about this dream I had where Corona became a towering kaiju you know, I had this dream where Corona was this like Godzilla-like monster rampaging the world. And, you know, how do I explain that I was a part of a team of Power Rangers that got to fight <laughs> and eventually lose, incidentally, yeah. in this dream? Anyways, yeah. um, these are just short vignettes mm-hmm. where I was free to write. I was free to be myself. I was free to write mm-hmm. the person who I am. <clears throat> and... It was just, and I should say that, as Michelle said, the history of dream interpretation runs like a red thread through the history of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, pick up a religious text, you're going to have dreams. And, you know, here I'm thinking of uh, the Hebrew Bible, I'm thinking of the New Testament, I'm thinking of Buddhist sutras, you know, mm-hmm. they're everywhere. And there's a particular tradition of dream interpretation that was born and cultivated on the Kamano Kodo. So if you go back and read the literature, mm-hmm. so much of the medieval history of the Kamano Kodo and the spiritual topography was informed by the dreams of emperors who would walk this path and their dreams became embedded in the landscape. And the idea is that uh, I think everybody's dreams are embedded in the landscape. It's just, we decided to tell everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And I think they do offer a key. I I will say um, they're based on our dreams, but there's a little literary invention there. Sure, sure. And so I think mm-hmm. that we've hit little ciphers in the dreams to understand some of the experiences that happened right, before now. Right. No, I liked the inclusion of that and different insights that come out of that. These different, uh, yeah, as you said at the beginning, altered states of consciousness that, you, that you're also gaining wisdom and little nuggets of insights that you might not uh, have in your waking time, but in the dream time, different messages might come through to you. So 
Yeah, I really liked the way that you blended all of that together in the book. It made it for very, uh, very engaging read. I was <laughs> very, you know, enthusiastic about, you know, let's move on to the next page. I want to know what happens. You know? <laughs> so it made it, yeah, more, more of a kind of a, uh, uh, a saga in that sense of like what, what happened on the field that day. So it was very, uh, I really liked that. We've mentioned uh, Victor Turner uh, quite a bit. Uh, his idea that pilgrimage places one in another context of existence is one that you, uh, of course, talk about in your book. And you also state, quote, and so we forged our fellowship from out of the non-human world, end quote. And we've been kind of talking about hobbits and things like that, you know, felt the fellowship of, uh, of, of, of people coming together for a, for a common uh, goal. I found this to be a really interesting sentence. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about how you envision this non-human world. Well, the term non-human world is our attempt to skirt the very thorny issue of animism. Mm-hmm. Animism itself is a term that is used in the official literature to describe Shinto. However, as Westerners, we recognize that the term animism is freighted with colonial meanings. That, of course, animism was introduced in the anthropological literature as a means of describing things that were religion, but not quite official enough to be recognized as religion by anthropologists. So it was diminutive. Uh-huh. And that, that didn't sit right with us. That, that's not what we're trying to do. However, the meaning of animism makes a lot of sense to us. It, uh-huh. it actually is not diminutive. We use it in a positive sense. Right. But we wanted to somehow communicate the fact that we are not skin-encapsulated egos you know, navigating our bodies around like little car. No, we exist in an interpersonal communion with life around us. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that as a point of departure allowed us to tell a different story. And a, a story that I think is much more honest to experience. Um, and that's what separates our book from a novel or a comic book or a film, which is where you have very clear characters and they are on a journey that will more or less conform to an arc, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the hero's journey, blah, blah, blah. Well, our book doesn't have that. Instead, it's much more interested in mapping the way in which pilgrimage changes cognition. And, okay, that's vague. <laughs> changes cognition. What doesn't, you know? <laughs> uh, mapping the way in which we felt welcomed into a larger community and conversation despite the fact that we were walking in silence for five to six to seven hours a day and that's something to mention that the pilgrimage is often defined by more silence than talking so you go to bed you wake up you get dressed more or less without chat you go you maybe have a hot drink and then you sit on the road there's not really much to talk about however you're communicating all the time Mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes sense but there is this, you're communicating in different ways. Yeah. And I think that silence does something to your brain where it begins to function differently. And you can hear, we, we make mention of like the wind chatting and Brother Moon joking. There is a sense that that's not a poetic flourish, that, oh, no, 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 that butterfly 
moved in a certain way that I found to be very threatening <laughs> or amusing or whatever. <laughs> and so, you know, what's the opposite of paranoia where everything is infused with divine significance? Mm-hmm. I don't know the word for that. The opposite of paranoia, but yeah, I think, I think also for me, uh, an important thing about the non-human world is also that I'm still a human. I'm not, I'm not trying to break that identity for myself. Um, but the non-human world is also a recognition of, these different spirits, but it's also, for me, an important part is the sort of different temporalities. And we talk about this a little in the book that, you know, these mountains are, are skittering across these mountains for that mountain has a meaning that I can't access as a human. So there's also, I think the non-human world is a way to talk about a kind of limit of knowing for us as humans and recognition that there are other kinds of ways of knowing that I'm never going to know. And I can only, I can theorize. Maybe even talking about knowing is sort of um, too anthropocentric even to say. Right, but right. different times of like the cat that's sleeping in the sunbeam has a different understanding of time and what it's doing in the world than this mountain, than the dream visions that we have. All these different times are, are, are happening that become non-human and force me to think about if I'm human, what is non-human? I think that non-human is also kind of an, remains an open question. What is the non-human world? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because we're, we're the humans and we're defining it. So how, how far can we actually get with that, with that definition? And, and that's the risk we're taking in the book mm. is we're risking, we're betting on the possibility that we can access those other temporalities and through that access become the human animal mm. instead of, the individual or the default or something. Yeah. And really challenge ourselves to become something else, to become monstrous, as we say. <laughs> and I, I think that that's, that's a risk that's worth taking. It's a, it's a, it's a risk that I think um, not only is transformative for yourself, but that transformation uh, stays with you. I think when you come back and it's harder to actually integrate back into the workaday world after surrendering mm. so much of who you thought you were, getting to a point where you understand yourself different. Well, it's, it's pretty harsh. It's pretty hard. In fact, uh, whenever we come back from pilgrimage, I feel like I've, I've, I've sacrificed something I shouldn't have left behind. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's, it's really, difficult. you know, it's, it's, it's an unenjoyable moment of returning. <laughs> um, you mentioned that uh, in the conclusion that pilgrimage reveals how everyday life is a divine farce. <laughs> I liked that sentence. I thought that was, uh, even though I have never been on a pilgrimage, now that you're talking about pilgrimage as as, uh, as other types of journeys that you might take that have special significance or meaning for you, um, yeah, I could see how you might, uh, how that, that could be a very um, strong feeling that you have. Like, what what is all this about, this, you know... <laughs> going back to the humdrum life, what is this really about? So yeah, this meaning making actually is what is what you're what you're doing on this journey, and opening yourself to meaning to different, um, different layers of, of meaning for for yourself. So that's kind of how it came across to me. I don't know if that's how you intended it to come across. Yeah. Um, Definitely is. I remember when I came back and I was in the swing of things and 
caught sight of myself in the mirror and I was like, look at this busy little human. <laughs> in his busy little world in his in his business suit. Look look at him and all of his little distractions. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. Like yeah. cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And you know, when I'm in that workaday world, it's all important. I gotta get this email out. I gotta file that report. I gotta finish this peer review. And it's like that that second order consciousness kicked mm. in for a moment. And I was like, what a fart. And I don't even know it's a farce. That's the problem. You know, like it's so serious for me. And the, the, the pilgrim itself just, you know, had a laugh and was just like, well, mm. good luck. Seems like you're busy. I won't bother you. And I only get to revisit that second order consciousness when I'm back in the road. And of course it takes two or three or four days mm. to burn off all of these little habits, these mental routines, mm-hmm. these this conditioning. And you have to descend into it. You have to surrender into it. You can't force it. Right. And I, and I think it's valuable, you know, to have that recognition, looking in the mirror and being like a busy human in his busy human world <laughs> has no idea about the time, about the temporality of the mountains, which, which I, or perhaps we were fortunate enough to experience. Mm-hmm. And it's those experiences that I think really allow you a little bit of insight. And in fact, allow you to press pause for a minute at important moments in your life and ask if this is what you really want to do. Mm. And it's yeah. that type of it's that type of questioning that has led me to where I am today. Let me be more specific. I've quit a lot of jobs <laughs> to get to where I am today because I realized that that was not the path I wanted to be. Yeah. On. And I've been fortunate enough to find myself where I am today, but I attribute a lot of that, if I can use the word wisdom, not to myself or any puzzling, uh, you know, any, any critical thinking I did, but to these moments where I step out. And it's only from the outside that I can see who I am and where I'm going. I think, too, the, the divine farce is such a great turn of phrase, I think, also because it applies. It also applies to pilgrimage. But somehow when I'm on pilgrimage and I'm part of this divine farce of, of uh, stumbling or saying the wrong thing or having just, like, the funniest thought I've ever had and then I try and express it and it's not funny at all, I'm better able to see the absurdity of myself as a human mm. and really kind of enjoy that. I think that that, you know, the, sort of an absurdist playwright like a like an Ionesco is someone that's always resonated with me because there's it's it's a look at how absurd humans are, but it's not to make fun of them. It's really to say, isn't this wonderful that we move through the world thinking that we know everything, thinking that we've got it figured out or that this is important and that it's important, but really we're all just trying to live a good life and be happy. Mm. And sometimes mm. happiness comes yeah. out of very farcical moments. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we talk a lot about excrement in our book. Yeah, yeah. I, lot, I noticed that. <laughs> there's a lot of shitting. In the there's book. a lot of shitting. There's a lot of Bakhtin then, I would say. There's a lot yeah. of Mikhail Bakhtin, this carnivalesque body, that, which doesn't shy away from, I think that's an intellectual touchstone for both of us, doesn't shy away from, again, that fleshiness of the body, just the mm. inherent humor of having a flesh body. Yeah, it's burping, a thing farting, do. eating, sleeping. Oh, I mean, I'll, I'll just let you in on one final thing. My favorite part of the book <laughs> is when I talk about sleeping in albergues. Albergues are the pilgrim hostels. And I don't know if you've ever been to one of these, but it's a gymnasium with 40 cots set up. No dividers. Bunk you know? beds. Yeah, bunk beds set up and 40 people all sleeping. And I remember the first night I was on the Camino, <laughs> it was a symphony of <laughs> like farting, mo- groaning. And it was just like, I am never going to go to sleep. This is, I was in ecstasy. I loved it. I was cackling the whole night because of this no, this opera of human sounds. Mm. And by the end of the Camino, I couldn't go to sleep without it. You know, I, 
I couldn't yeah. go back into my apartment with like a low hum. I need to go to YouTube, look up sounds of humans. You know. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 a recognition of being in a body and enjoying everything the body does and not hiding it away. Right, right. Excellent. Thank you both for sharing all of this information regarding the liminal space that uh, <laughs> that you both inhabited and the entities you encountered on your journey. Um, well, rejected religion is a liminal space, so we're happy <laughs> to inhabit with you, Stephanie. Really, I it love, is such a joy coming on here. I we love really liminal. love your podcast. I love yeah, the liminal. <laughs> I like the. I really. I think the. Even though I enjoyed the entire book, I think the thing that stuck out most to me is because it kind of really resonated with with what I do. Uh, and my own research about this this idea of, um, I guess, inclusiveness that we're talking about non human things here, but it's uh, it's done in such a respectful and yeah, I, I'm tr- I'm struggling to try to find the right words. It's it's almost as if you are uh, approaching this with the mindset of, I guess, a humility as well, that you're not thinking, you know, oh, here, I'm the great and powerful human going to, mm-hmm. you know, have a have my say about this, this, this thing called a pilgrimage and all of the things that happened to me. But you have, as you said, surrendered yourself to all of these things that, that happened to you and that you have been so in tune with all of these other things and other beings and other ideas, other concepts that I guess in the day-to-day life, you're too distracted and too busy with, you know, with that, oh yeah, I got to do, you know, I have this whole to-do list of things that I have to do today. So you're not really even thinking about non-human entities or other states of being or other ways of being and moving in the world. So I think that's what I took away from it. It resonated the most with me because I research people who, you know, consider themselves non-human. And I am so interested in how that feels for someone to move through their life and through the world with that other way of looking, that other, those other eyes that they're, you know, the, the the vision that they have is maybe it's completely different from mine. I don't know. As a human being, I can't I can't know for certain. But I don't know if this is even making any sense. It tries. Okay. It, I guess it's oh. like helping to bring me a little bit closer to a, a type of understanding. And I really enjoyed the book in that sense. That even though you were talking about pilgrimage, I guess for me it was more about like how people experience the world, not just that one part of your journey to, to go on the Kumano Kodo, but also how, when you come back into your regular life, how then that experience helps you to look at the world in a different way. If that makes sense. Absolutely. (laughs) No, Stephanie, you really nailed it. And this is why I enjoy coming on your podcast so much. It's really like talking to an old friend. Yeah, and I have to say, you draw stuff out of me. You draw stuff out of us that 
you know, we've done a few interviews before. They're never like this. They're never this fun. And I've had a lot of good new ideas that I've been writing. Oh, down yeah. Later. <laughs> Stephanie, you're, you're the absolute best. And we really enjoy talking to you. It, it really does bring out the best in us. Oh, so I now to, I am going to start crying. <laughs> uh, I really want to thank you. Also, I just have a few comments. We wanted to announce on your show that we have finally managed to find a way to ship books internationally. So Kumano Kodo is Wonderful. now available to international audiences for a pretty reasonable, I think a reasonable fee. I should also say that the book was only published in an edition of 250. So um, there aren't a great number of these floating around the world, but I'm happy to say that a large majority of them have gone to university libraries. University yeah. libraries have, great. for whatever reason, picked up on it. And so they'll be preserved there. Yeah. So check your local university library. But if not, we invite you to check out. Um, oh, if you're international, the book can be purchased quite easily on eBay. And Excellent. that allows us to, uh, to send them all around the world. Otherwise, it's on Amazon. And you can buy it off us on uh, Instagram, too. All right. Well, I will be certain to include all of that information in the program notes. I also yeah. uh, wanted to know if, uh, if people want to find you online or perhaps on social media, how can they contact you if they have questions or if they, you know, out of this discussion, you know, that they have their own things that they'd like to ask you about, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, Instagram's best place. Okay. I am Angel Headed Hipsters Archive. I'm on there talking about the book. And mm-hmm. I should say the book includes about 30 full color collages. And Ex- yeah, I use the Instagram to, uh, to kind of, make collages and and that that was not a i mean there was some dupress in that but that was all christian that those are your works oh, of art thanks. um really incredible works. In- inspiring me. Yeah. but yeah it, uh, angel at hipsters and then of course i have a website which is jchristiangreer.com and you can download your own pilgrim's passport <laughs> yeah. uh, passports are a part of the material culture of pilgrimage everyone has their own and we think it's cool if you design your own passport and so we offer a little little guidance on that front mm-hmm. and for you yeah i think instagram is probably the best i'm okay. at speculative archaeology would be my instagram uh, page wonderful yeah. wonderful well again my thanks to you both for this fascinating discussion i learned a lot reading your book and also in uh, in discussing this uh, this uh, with you today uh, i hope that the listeners will reach out to you uh, with any questions that they might have or any comments or anything they'd like to share so, you know, it really was my pleasure to uh, to talk with you both today. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's do it again very soon, I Stephanie. Hope Have so. a great day. I hope so. Bye-bye. My thanks again to Michelle and Christian for this wonderful conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it too. Please check out the program notes for more information about purchasing their book, plus their social media and website links and links to their other publications. As you can probably hear in my voice, I've been rather ill these past weeks. It seems like months, Uh, but things are getting better, even though it doesn't sound like it at the moment. Anyway, I have some really interesting things in the works for upcoming podcasts and spotlights from topics ranging from the esoteric in UFO phenomena to Arthur Edward Waite's second tarot deck. I'm also working on another occulture video for the YouTube channel, and I'm lining up some more interviews for the coming months and working on some blog posts too, Uh, so I hope you'll stay tuned for all of that. That's it for this time. Take care, everybody, and as always, thanks for listening.